Amen. <laughs> so when I was uh, first coming to faith in my teens, my, really my first discovery of the living power of God was through his word, and it was particularly through this part of his word, Romans 9 through 11. I encountered it when I was about 17 in a Bible study for college students. <clears throat> and a lot of us college students were discovering this part of scripture for the first time together, and several of us, as we encountered Romans 9 through 11, reacted quite strongly against it. <laughs> Especially the part about God's purpose of election in Romans 9, where God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then Paul's conclusion that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The clay has no right to question the potter. This is really hard stuff. Uh, maybe you have similar memories in your own Christian walk of wrestling through this teaching. Uh, maybe you're only just encountering it now for the first time and finding it alarming. Uh, here, in the idea of election, we bump into a really big God, a God who is pulling all the strings. And the foundations of our whole existence starts to shake. Uh, we leap to questions like, well then, is there really any such thing as freedom? If God has that much power, do I have any choice in the matter? Because it would seem not. And I remember my college Bible study group arguing <clears throat> over questions like this and raising our voices, <clears throat> I'm using mine, <clears throat> and uh, calling each other names. Um, thank you. I was angry after some of our meetings, and I thought about giving up on God altogether. But I stayed to fight it out with him. I wrestled all through the night like Jacob, and I came away limping but blessed. Um, so I want to tackle with you some of these really big questions today and hopefully guide you through to some peace on the other side of them. Because I found out, it turns out that election isn't an alarming and dehumanizing doctrine. It doesn't destroy our freedom. It actually produces it. And it ends up being the only way that we can find peace and contentment in our relationship with God. So we're going to look at these things together. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter, uh, chapter 11. And uh, here we're going to find everything that Paul believes about election on display in his extended metaphor about the olive tree. That made a great noise, didn't it? All right. So first, the olive tree shows the sovereign choice of God. Second, the olive tree also shows the free choice of humans. And third, it leaves us with something not to do and then something to do. So first, the olive tree shows us the sovereign choice of God. In verse 17, Paul addresses the Gentiles, saying, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. So this is a really wonderful image, a very famous, that Paul introduces. Jonathan's Explain to us what grafting is, the practice of grafting branches onto trees. Um, and it's still very much in practice today. It was, it was a practice of the ancient world. It's still very much in practice today, um, especially in growing fruit. So I learned this week that um, in American apple orchards, they're made up almost entirely of grafted trees because they graft apple branches onto much smaller dwarf trees so that the apples grow much closer to the ground. And this saves a bunch of time and money at harvest time because you don't have to send people up ladders to pick the fruit. And of course, it also saves a lot of money on insurance payouts to ladder-related injuries. Uh, so we have grafting to thank for our cheap apples. 
So Paul borrows this agricultural practice of grafting to explain the situation between Jews and Gentiles, and it works remarkably well. <clears throat> what Paul says is there is one tree, one family of God, which is Israel, the family of Abraham, and Israel is often likened in the Old Testament to an olive tree. And now, says Paul, in these days of the Messiah, God is doing a little gardening. He's pruning off some of the native branches of the olive tree, cutting out some ethnic Israelites in order to graft in some Gentiles in their place. Gentiles from every tribe and language and people and nation. And there is still just one tree, one unified family of God. But now, after Jesus, it's a multi-ethnic family. And God's purpose in grafting is to produce more fruit. So for a while, in the early 20th century, scholars mocked Paul for messing up his olive tree grafting image. They said, you'd never graft wild branches into a cultivated tree, Paul. That's horticultural nonsense. And Paul, the city boy, you messed it up. But actually, some later research then came to Paul's defense, because it turns out there was a practice in the ancient Middle East of grafting a few wild branches onto a cultivated tree. And the reason they would do it was that the tree had become old and a bit fruitless. Um, and if you cut off some of the old branches and put a few wild branches in their place, it would freshen things up and make the whole tree more fruitful again. So it turns out that Paul's metaphor is even more perfect than we originally thought, because the addition of Gentiles is designed to reinvigorate Jewish fruitfulness. Now, we've got to look at this image, and we've got to see how important God's role is. Right? God must be the gardener. He decides which branches come off and which get added. This olive tree is God's project from start to finish. And even this pruning and grafting process is not reactionary. It was foretold long ago by the prophets. It has a purpose as part of God's one great salvation plan. So Paul says in verse 25, Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial <clears throat> hardening or blinding has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. And then Paul goes back to the Old Testament blueprint. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul's saying we are still exactly on plan. This is God's plan. He's had a plan from the beginning. He laid it out ahead of time. God has always and is still in control. And look back at verse 25, the plan is waiting, Paul says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And he chooses just a lovely word here for fullness. Uh, it means the complete inventory of a ship. So the Greeks would build ships, and they were carefully designed around a specific crew size. A ship of a certain size would need a certain number of sailors to operate it, and each of those sailors would need a place to sleep and food to eat and fresh water to drink, and that's how big your ship needs to be. So imagine that ship at port, all ready to set sail. It has on board every one of the sailors that it's designed to carry and all of their provisions that they will need for their planned voyage. That ship is full. That's what God is waiting for as he waits for the fullness of the Gentiles. It means there's a specific number, a plan, a design, and an intended voyage. Our God is a plan-making and plan-executing God, and we are still on track with all his plans. It means that God is sovereign. He is the prime mover. 
And in verse 28, Paul speaks to Gentile Christians about the children of Abraham and says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So again, we see Paul's view of a God who elects people, who chooses his people. He decides before we are born whether or not we're going to join his family. And we also see a God who never makes mistakes because his gifts and his calling are irrevocable. The Greek word means unregretted and unrepented of. God does not regret his former choice, nor does he repent of it. It was not a mistake. Every one of his choices is good and right and pleasing, and he stands by them. So first, the olive tree shows the sovereign choice of God. In this passage, we meet an all-seeing, an all-powerful God who knows the end from the beginning, who chooses beforehand which of his creatures will belong to him. And that might honestly leave us wondering what space is left for us. In the face of God's persuasive and powerful will, does anything we do or say matter? Does any of it make a difference? And we see that the answer right here is yes. Because second, the olive tree shows the free choice of humans. So for starters, Paul's own response to the things that he believes is to get up and get going. Verse 13, he says, Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Do you see that? Paul's response to what he believes is to work harder. God is sovereign, therefore I'm going to get to work. He believes that more effort on his part will produce more effect in the world, an eternal harvest of souls. And Paul credits himself with power to save his fellow Jews. Then in verse 20, he's talking within the sovereign plan of God, but Paul also gives credit to the decisions of people when he says they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. It's clearly cause and effect. Human decisions have made a difference. The choice of unbelief means you get broken off. The choice of faith means you get grafted in. It is all God's doing, but at the same time, it is the right and natural outcome of human choices. God said to Cain, right at the beginning of the Bible, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And God deals in the same way with all of us. So no one is accepted apart from God's choice, but on the other hand, no one is rejected apart from their own choice. Both are true. And we see both in harmony right here in this passage. Also, we cannot miss Paul's writing style here as he addresses free and responsible people, saying in verse 20, So do not become proud but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. These are the stern words of a father to responsible children, saying their decisions matter, their behavior matters. God will respond to what they do, either with kindness or with severity. And here Paul chooses two very highly evocative words. Kindness in the Greek means soft grandfatherly benevolence, with a sunny twinkly smile as he hands you a second piece of cake. Um, and severity comes from the Greek word for a rocky cliff face. It's sudden, 
dramatic, unexpected, harsh, sharp, and rigorous. And Paul calls us to consider how God is both. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. We should note it because it will affect the way we behave toward God. And that behavior will affect the outcome of our lives. So our decisions are real and they make a difference. And that is what we mean by freedom. Now, we should pause here and realize that Christianity's insistence on real human freedom does not help it catch up with the pack of other philosophies, as if they all came to that conclusion long ago. It actually sends Christianity out far ahead of the pack. Philosophies that are based on foundations other than God, on foundations like materialism, atheism, and humanism, have a terribly hard time defending freedom. They tend to arrive at the conclusion that, since there is only matter and energy, which interact only by random chance, human freedom must be an illusion. We cannot be more than incredibly complex machines, operating under the same basic physical laws as our own computers. So if we could understand every step of the chemical sequence by which we make decisions, we could entirely predict what any person would do for all the remaining moments of her life. She must be a prisoner of causality and therefore in no way free. So just this week, the New York Times had an interview with Stephen Fry. He's a British actor, but he's a really smart guy, a Cambridge grad, and he reads widely in philosophy. Uh, he was in the New York Times this week saying, I would say that 98% of all philosophers would agree with me that essentially free will is a myth. It doesn't exist. That tends to be the consensus of the atheists today. So, far from God being the tyrant who eliminates our free will, the truth is quite the reverse. Only God can make us free. God is free, and he can make us free in his image. No other mechanism is known to exist. So insofar as we perceive ourselves to be free, and of course we all do, that is evidence of the truth of our faith and evidence for the bankruptcy of godless philosophy. So what does all this mean? Third and finally, it leaves us with something not to do and something to do. The thing not to do is boast. Uh, this might be the main reason Paul brought up this whole subject of election in the first place, to stop the Gentiles from boasting. Uh, because he says in verse 18, do not be arrogant. He says in verse 20, do not become proud. And in verse 25, do not be wise in your own sight. All the good gifts of God come only always through God's mercy, never by our own deserving. Verse 32, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So friends, that's what election means. This is what election means right here in verse 32. It means that none of us chose Jesus, he chose us. So you can think about it this way. After Jesus died and rose again, God surveyed the whole human family for the rest of history and he looked out and he asked himself, now, who will believe in my son and be saved? And as he looked out, the answer came back, no one. Not one, not a single one, not one Jew, not one Gentile. So we're all sinful, yes, we already established that, we all need a savior, but in addition, we're all so dead and so blind that even when salvation is offered to us on a plate, not one of us would reach out and take it. 
That's what Paul means by all being disobedient. It means disobedient to his gospel, refusing the message that would save us. So election then is the doctrine that God was unsatisfied with that answer. He would not take nobody. And so he selected a portion of humanity whose decision against Jesus he would overturn. God invaded our freedom to cause us to make a decision for life instead of for death. And would any of us accuse God of wrongdoing when he did that? That being the case, has any of us any right to boast? What do we have that we did not receive? Are we smarter than our friends and more aware of the truth of things? Do not boast. What do you have that you did not receive? Are we still married while most of our friends' marriages have failed? Do not boast. What do you have that you did not receive? And have we found a better job, a higher income, and more success than the rest of our graduating class? Do not boast. What do you have that you did not receive? Where you discover that you have been blessed, thank God, and get on with the work of loving your neighbor. So that's something not to do, which is boast. And we've also segued into the something to do, and that is to get out of bed. Thank you. <laughs> Let me explain that. All right, so Tim Keller, when he talks about election, says, if I believed either that God dictated every one of my steps or that my choices determine my ultimate future, I'd find it impossible to get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> so think about this. Uh, if you think that where you'll end up for eternity depends entirely on what you do today, what could be a more terrifying thought than that? Knowing as we do what poor decisions we make every single day, could we stand to have the judgment of our eternal future rest on our own shoulders? The weight of that would crush us to death and we'd be afraid to get out of bed in the morning. But if on the other hand, if every step and every decision of our lives has already been decided by God ahead of time and written down in his book, if we're really only marching through a script God has already written for us, why would we bother getting out of bed? Nothing I could choose to do today is gonna to make any ultimate difference. I can't personally see why 98% of philosophers bother to get out of bed. But Christianity gets us out of bed as it got Paul out of bed in verse 13, because Christianity says that our ultimate future is secured for us by God as a gift of his mercy. We cannot ultimately blow it because the love and grace of Jesus keeps us safe in the Father's hand. But at the same time, we've been given real freedom to serve in God's name, a new life to live, another day to live it, and fruitful work to do that God promises is gonna reap an eternal harvest. What could be more motivating than that? We're assured against failure, we're guaranteed success and promised an eternal reward for the part that we played in that success, even though it was such a small one. So let's get out of bed. We, who are mostly Gentiles, have been given a responsibility toward our Jewish brothers and sisters. If you think about the whole history of faith, for centuries, they kept the word of God safe for us delivered it to us perfect and complete and lacking in nothing, and they also delivered to us God's holy son, perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. And in some sense, they handed the baton at that point over to Gentiles. Paul says now, it's the Gentiles' turn. 
Because the more that Gentiles find new life in Jesus today, the more it's going to provoke Israel to jealousy, and the more they will be motivated to find that new life for themselves. And Paul looks ahead in verse 26 to a day when all Israel will be saved. There are only three things that statement could mean. The first is that every blood relative of Abraham is saved, never mind if they accept or reject Jesus. Paul obviously can't mean that because his letter to the Romans says the complete opposite. And if Paul believed that, why would he lament over his fellow Jews with tears? The second thing Paul could mean is that Israel is now redefined as the people who accept the salvation offered in Jesus, who are both Jewish and Gentile believers. And there is some truth to his understanding, uh, that understanding in Paul. He does say something earlier in Romans that's quite like that. But again, it cannot be what Paul means here, because that would be a completely meaningless thing to say, and because he's clearly using the word Israel throughout this whole chapter to refer to the biological family of Abraham. So having eliminated the first two interpretations as impossible, the third, however improbable, must be the case that still to come in our future is a day when mainstream Judaism accepts Jesus as their Messiah. Paul says that's going to happen. All Israel means the living family of Abraham as a whole, rather than all without exception. And Paul says the family of Abraham as a whole will turn to Jesus and be saved. And Paul says that day will come after the full number of the Gentiles has come in. So if we are energized to see this prophecy fulfilled, what we do is keep sharing the gospel with as many Gentiles as we can, and ourselves keep living out the fullest lives in God that we can in front of our Jewish friends in order to provoke them to jealousy. Because God wants his people back, and he will use us to find them if we let him. So, God's election keeps us from boasting. God's sovereignty keeps us safe, and our freedom keeps us motivated. We will never give up the work until our Father calls us home. Amen.